Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the cyber talent problem the whole government suffers from, the next generation of open data, and a Capitol Hill band gets back together to fix IT. It's Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. 15 vendors have the inside track on the Commerce Department's billion-and-a-half-dollar enterprise IT contract. A pre-award notice for the Commerce Acquisition for Transformational Technology Services contract lists the vendors that have successful bids to get task orders. The contract has one base year with nine option years. Christopher Adams will start his new job as Chief Information Security Officer for the Treasury Department's departmental offices October 10th. Adams spent more than a decade as an Air Force IT official. He's also a veteran of AT&T in the private sector. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Bill LaPlante, is one of the headliners at Defense Talks Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech, Ann Newberger, will be there too. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes, The Daily Scoop Podcast. One big source of cyber talent for federal agencies is other federal agencies. The chief information officer at the Commerce Department, Andre Mendez, says poaching is becoming more common as the talent pool tightens. Simone Zickman is senior vice president for client growth at Maximus. He's former chief information officer at Commerce. Simone, welcome. It's good to see you again. Is this uh, a feature or a bug of the federal government system that one of the places agencies can go to find talent is stealing them from other agencies? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Always great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I I think it's probably... uh, I don't know if I would call it a feature or a bug, but it's a reality that has benefits and disadvantages, of course. What does one do in a situation where one must always be on guard, not just for employees transitioning to the private sector, but transitioning to some other agency? What, what tools does one have at one's disposal? Well, I think the, the best way to, to deal with that, if you're somebody who has talent that you don't want to lose, is give people a reason to stay. And I think that that's true whether people might be considering opportunities at other agencies or in the private sector. It's about giving people the the kinds of in working environment that that allows them to stay. And that means independence, empowerment, autonomy, the ability to make decisions, the kinds of things that are general best practices for employee retention. And then beyond that, giving them longer term career paths. So that if, for example, if somebody is a GS-13 and that agency has a GS-14 position, create an environment where people can move up internally rather than always filling new positions with external candidates. All right. You were throwing some ideas off the cuff there, and I respect that, that it wasn't a, a, a hardened agenda necessarily about giving people a reason to stay, but a couple of those that, that I jotted down, independence, empowerment, uh, autonomy. That sounds to me like maybe that's easier said than done. What are the deliberate actions that one should take or maybe that you took as a CIO to provide that to people, to give them that incentive to stay? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with leadership style. And in, in I, I think leadership style, my view is part of it is innate, but part of it can be learned. 
so certainly people who tend to lean a little bit toward a little bit more towards micromanaging, you you sort of want to push yourself away from that end of the spectrum and allow people to make decisions and and perhaps some decisions may still need to come up for approval, but you still allow other people to make those decisions subject to approval rather than making decisions for them. So I think that the independence and autonomy uh, in, in general are practices that can be instituted. And, and I mean, they, these are workforce management best practices. It's not my uh, unique uh, insights here, but they apply to any kind of environment, not just a cybersecurity environment. It's about how to keep people happy so that they don't leave. If I study these uh, workforce best practices that you reference as a leader, and I think, you know, I really need to improve in some of these areas. What have you recommended to people over time as ways that they can improve? Say, maybe I'm, I'm, I am a bit of a micromanager and I need to improve on that skill. How do you, how do you suggest to folks to, to improve in those areas? I would say two things that really helped me in the past were going through leadership training. I think there are a lot of leaders out there who have been through some kind of leadership training or executive training, but there are also some folks who have just moved up uh, into management positions because of uh, a level of technical skill and acumen rather than leadership acumen. And so part of it is just a matter of education. Learn more. You can do this through courses. You can do it through self-study. Uh, I've, um, I, I learned a lot reading a book about organizational behavior, which is both how organizations and individuals that comprise organizations behave and how to motivate people, what, what incentivizes versus disincentivizes performance. Uh, and that's a pretty enlightening set of ideas for, for folks who haven't been exposed to them. You pinpointed a problem that is much deeper than just the cyber workforce or the federal workforce. Uh, broadly, and that is the idea that people get promoted to management leadership roles through technical expertise. Uh, the government struggled for decades with the idea of creating a management track for people who may have aptitude toward that, and there are a lot of reasons that go into that. Have you seen any any success stories about establishing a management track for people who may not be the very best technical experts, but may be really good at building a team or, or managing people and getting the best out of them so that we can keep the best technical experts on the technical things that they really enjoy doing? That's a really interesting question. And I, I'll, I'll give it maybe a, a yes and no kind of answer, which is to say, I think that that probably has happened, but I don't know if it's happened by design. So I, I think we certainly could look out there and identify situations where people have had that kind of path. But to your, to the more specific question you asked about whether there's a management track and deliberate actions to foster movement of people into that track, that kind of a track based on their aptitudes, uh, I, I think if it happens, it's probably a little more isolated circumstances than because of a, a deliberate broad strategy to do to do that. That's something though that I imagine would be tremendously useful for organizations across government to be able to identify people who have that management potential and develop those skills along with the technical skills as the person's career matures. Yeah, I think I think that's something that still gets discussed. I think the big questions are how to implemented how to put the idea into practice because on 
on the surface, the idea makes a lot of sense, but the question is how, and sometimes the devil is in the details, especially in the government, given how decisions are made. And the other half of it is how do you create criteria for identifying talent and selecting talent that align with that kind of a strategy? And it, it takes some thought to figure out how to do that and how to do it well. What did you look for? What traits did you look for in people when you tried to identify someone who would be a good manager, would be a good leader? One of the things that was most important to me, I, I had a tendency to be in roles where there was always too much work. So maybe it's partly because my philosophy is is on the other end of the spectrum, the anti-micromanager, but I looked for people that I didn't have to second guess their ideas. I didn't constantly have to evaluate their work. I could let them know where to go and give them some direction. And they were very self-starting. They would do things on their own, wouldn't constantly be coming to me for approvals. And where I could tell them the kinds of goals and outcomes we were trying to accomplish, but didn't have to spend my time telling them how to get there. They could figure that out on their own. All right. Back to the original premise of the conversation, which is the agency to agency stealing of talent. Yeah. Um, what do you expect to see the winning agencies? And it's a shame that we're in this position, but that's really what it boils down to. Some agencies are going to win at this talent battle and some agencies are not. What do you think the posture, the policy, uh, whatever, of the winning agencies looks like two years from now or five years from now, Simone? Well, I I know that there will be some winning agencies and some maybe less winning agencies. <laughs> I hope that I hope that on the whole, the government as one large entity is doing better along these dimensions that they're trying to do better. So that hopefully the the rising tide is elevating things for everyone. I think inherently the, the point you started out with is there's always going to be competition. And the fundamental reason for that is there are more positions available than there are people to fill them. And so there always will be people hiring from other people. And the talent pool that you're hiring from includes people in the private sector and people at other agencies. So you, you can't avoid that. But there are a few things to answer your question. First, I hope the ability to give people opportunities, career paths, and the kinds of intrinsically rewarding environments that result in people making decisions not solely based on salary. There, there are some mismatches because there are certain agencies that have the ability to pay more than other agencies. There are some special authorities that certain agencies have that not everybody, not every agency has. So there are some pay imbalances. And of course, with the private sector, there's a pay imbalance because the private sector can pay more. So one question that needs to be figured out from a strategic perspective is how to attract people based on criteria other than just pay. The second is how to grow the pool overall. And I think that there are some infrastructure elements for doing that that need to be exploited better. For example, uh, the National Security Agency and DHS have partnered on these national centers for academic excellence in cybersecurity. They started out with one one pool. Now they've broken up into three different categories. There's almost 400 of these universities and they produce a lot of talent. Um, so the question is, how do we get more people to go into education in this area? And that that takes time, of course, that, that won't result in people you can hire tomorrow. But to your question of three years from now or five years from now, hopefully we can 
improve the, the pool and reduce that competitive pressure among agencies. Simone Zickman, great conversation as always. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the cyber workforce in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till the end of the month. We'll announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new U.S. chief data scientist, Denise Ross, says disaggregated data is, quote, the next generation of data. Her comments are part of an exclusive conversation with FedScoop's Dave Nitschapir. You can see it now at FedScoop.com. Donna Roy is strategic advisor for national security at GuideHouse. She's former executive director of the Information Sharing and Services Office at the Department of Homeland Security and former chief operating officer at the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Donna, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm not a data expert. You are. What does disaggregated data mean in the context of data science? Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, love to talk about data. Disaggregated data is on the um, radar now more than ever because making policy decisions on aggregated, aggregated data can often result in inequities to small populations or, or sort of populations at risk, right? So if you aggregate it up, you don't find the patterns. And so disaggregated data is the opposite of that. It's, it's making the most granular data available to the statisticians or the data science. So um, race, as an example, can be counted a lot of ways um, in six categories or 31 categories. So um, if you do your analysis on six, you're not gonna see the same trends, as an example, um, if you do it on the more granular data. Um, I, I think the, um, the focus for me uh, uh, is uh, in a couple of areas that overlap with the work that we're doing. Uh, law enforcement and crime data is one, and the opioid crisis and mortality and drug data is another. Are there differences in the way that one collects and curates and analyzes disaggregated data as opposed to aggregated data? Um, most of the really rich data sets have disaggregated data, but when it's made available to the public, it's then aggregated. So as an example, uh, crime data, when you're arrested, uh, there's a, a lot of, it's very attribute rich about you, uh, the crime you were sort of involved in, where you were, what you were doing. It's often captured, stored, maintained at the right level, but not made publicly available, which is what I believe the um, uh, a chief data scientist uh, for the country is really sort of pushing at making that data much more available. So um, I, I know she talked about in her article about the police departments releasing some information and the number was around 130 or 100 and some change. There are 18,000 police departments in this country. That's a small down payment on getting equitable data. Um, she also mentioned, you know, what the challenge is, is you can't just, if you're one of the 18 thousand police departments, you can't just change your forms. One, the police department changes their forms. It doesn't make the data any better across the country. And so changing the forms means looking at the standards by which uh, that data is interoperable across the country so that you can analyze that for larger patterns. So changing the forms is a complex issue. Does one analyze and, and ask questions of disaggregated data differently than one does of aggregated data? Absolutely. So 
Um, I did a, a data challenge recently with some of our internal data scientists, and we were looking for um, drug uh, deaths. Uh, so it's an opioid crisis uh, example. We're looking for drug tests from the CDC. Um, the data we could get easily available that was digital was state or county level. It didn't have any socioeconomic data with it. So then we had to combine it with the census data at county level. But guess what? Aggregated uh, data and aggregated data doesn't make better data. It just makes some analysis that is less meaningful than just using the original data to start with. Um, and I think that's really the push is how do we get some of that disaggregated data out in the public more usable? Now I found the data on the CDC side. It was in a PDF file. Well, guess what? <laughs> that's not really helpful. It doesn't seem like. It wasn't helpful or timely uh, for, for the challenge that we had put forward. Um, and so there, there are large, vast amounts of data uh, stored in some of our government agencies. Um, and before sort of the recent advances in cloud um, and the reduction in cost of storage, um, a lot of this was done for a reason. We aggregate data either because it's too expensive to put it out there for the public in its raw format or we're trying to protect the privacy or the health uh, uh, HIPAA uh, data. Um, but I think it's time to relook at that. You know, it's nearly uh, free practically. I mean, the, the costs for data storage are cheap um, and the need for racial inequity, uh, other uh, uh, DEI efforts um, and making better policy based on the data, the need's been uh, never greater. Uh, and never more supported. A nuts and bolts question, Donna. Mm -hmm. how, how do you get that data off the PDFs? Because it seems to me there's probably a lot of stuff there that's valuable that it's, I mean, I can't imagine how usable, it can't be very usable in the formats that it's in now, some of this stuff. <laughs> it just can't be. You can have a, a data scientist write a bunch of R or Python code to go oh. scrape it off the PDFs that take time, and then you have to go correct the errors because the code's not perfect. Or you can go back to the source agency and get the files that created the PDF file. So it's all about getting to that source data. I looked at the CDC mortality data. Um, it's not as easy as just going back to the data, though. A lot of that data has changed over time. So um, uh, let's say the way they captured uh, 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 sort of education or race uh, has changed over time, and so. Before uh, 2001, I think they had 18 education codes. Now they have nine. And so if you're trying to look at a time span over that, then you have to do the remapping to be consistent across your analysis. And so um, the, the issue is really important for today's data scientists when you're starting to create training data or large data for machine learning algorithms, right? When you're trying to do the good work of getting the most granular data possible, getting to a baseline of consistent data, understanding that you're using as much disaggregated data, data that answers the questions, you know, is this fair, is this equitable? Are these algorithms uh, creating any bias? It means going back to this disaggregated data. I don't like the term, but I understand why the term is, is becoming um, uh, up to the surface now and talk about much more. So if, uh, if the government agencies uh, that hold large, I think CDC still runs a mainframe. They hold large, vast amounts of data, very complex data. I think the challenge is how do we get more of that available to the public um, so that we can uh, create transparent ways 
to hold our policymakers accountable to what's really happening in this country. Why don't you like the term disaggregated data? It's just kind of geeky. Oh. It's a data geeky term. But, when, um, but we're <laughs> geeks. I know, but they, I, used, I never used the term metadata when I had data uh, oh. jobs as well, because I thought it was, it was a term that uh, gets in between you and the business user where you're really trying to have a conversation around um, the quality of the data or what's in their data to make a better decision. How does one determine whether uh, one is successful in in doing all of the things that we've talked about in this conversation, Donna? What's the measure of success at some point in the future? Um, the measure of success goes right back to the question you're trying to answer and making sure you have the best data available um, that is broken down at the most granular level available possible. Uh, and if not, um, going off and doing a data collection, uh, if possible, that's not easy in the government, but doing a data collection to make sure that you dig into um, the right level of data to satisfy the question. Um, criminal justice um, uh, it, it sort of speaks to um, better transparency, Op opioid drug mortality deaths, better transparency. These are major issues in, in, the, in the country. And if we can't get to the cause uh, of uh, some of these issues and how to create the community outreach in the right places, then uh, it's hard to make an impact. Donna Roy, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about that conversation Dave Nichapier had with the Chief Data Scientist of the United States in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new House IT Modernization Caucus will kick off its work next Thursday. First meeting will focus on IT lessons the government learned from the pandemic. David Pounder is executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy at MITRE. He's former director of IT issues at the Government Accountability Office. Dave, welcome. It's great to see you again. Congressman Conley, Congressman Issa have the band back together again after a number of years. What do you expect to see this caucus take up and what do you intend to contribute to it? Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Francis. So a, a couple things here. Yeah, I think it's great to have the band back together. I mean, obviously, you know, leading up to the, you know, Fatara in December 2014, when, you know, Congressman Ice and Connolly worked together, uh, a lot of good things happened with that, you know, with the Fatara legislation back in the day. And I think if you look at, you know, things that are on the table right now, clearly, you know, cyber and supply chain is going to be a key topic. Uh, IT workforce always seems to come up. You know, there's some legislation being proposed on, uh, in the Senate right now on like building off of the Megabyte Act and uh, even more transparency when it comes to software licensing. Those things will all be on the table, but the caucus is the IT modernization caucus, right? And I do think France is a big thing that we need to tackle. It comes up in all the Fatara hearings. It comes up as part of FISMA reform. We need to really get serious about legacy modernization. Uh, you know, there are a lot of lessons learned from the pandemic with what happened with the state unemployment systems, you know, where folks at the Labor Department helped a number of states out. But, you know, we continue to uh, talk about legacy modernization. And I think we need to get more serious about budgets, plans, and actions against those plans. What can an IT modernization caucus do out of the legislative branch? to impact that legacy modernization effort in the executive branch, Dave? 
Yeah, so clearly the caucus could do things. I mean, you know, the some of the hearings with their oversight, you know, with the House Oversight and Gov Reform Committees that the members of Congress are involved in. But I'm actually hopeful, and there's been discussions behind the scenes for actually a number of years now, could there possibly be a FATARA 2.0, Francis? I mean, we had a lot of good things that happened with FATARA, you know, in the scorecard and, you know, with uh, Congress actually sticking to it with their oversight. But I, I really think that if you if you take the next step on enhancing the workforce and focusing more on cyber and the legacy modernization things that we talk about is like the scorecard evolving. Yeah. You could, you could actually look at potential legislation down the road that could address some of these things and could really lay the agenda for future Congresses. What makes that necessary as opposed to just continuing to fine tune the scorecard that we have now, though? Uh, you could fine tune the scorecard, but I, I will say if you codify that in legislation, okay. uh, I think the chances of you getting more action consistently across the executive branch, that seems to have worked, Francis, historically. All right. There's a lot of components that you laid out there that it strikes me this caucus then in that context of how they can impact the executive branch Um could kind of tie up a bunch of these and and I, loose ends is maybe too casual a term to use but you talked about supply chain cyber it workforce fisma reform uh and and the big one legacy modernization tying that to budgets those are all pieces that we've talked about you're right for many many years and we've seen some movement in some areas of those and we've seen not much movement in some of in other areas of those the one in particular that it strikes me we haven't seen a terrible amount of of forward progress is how you modernize the workforce how you upskill them and how, and and this isn't a technology problem unfortunately this is a, a a a hiring and retention problem that i don't see much impact that the legislative branch has had so far they've tried but we're still seeing the hiring times as long as they've ever been. We're still seeing the attrition rates as as big as, as, as they've ever been, and so on. Yeah, so Francis, a, a couple things here. One thing that the legislative branch can do, and I'm, I'm going to point to the Inflation Reduction Act that was just signed. And they talk a lot about, you know, certain things that were given to IRS, but there were $4.8 billion given to IRS uh, associated with systems modernization. One of the things that was buried in that bill was 300 critical position pay, critical position pay authorities, right? That's how like a Richard Spires and a Terry Milholland came in historically into the IRS. I think that has really helped to attract uh, uh, qualified individuals with the right experience to the government, those critical pay positions. So that's something that the legislative branch can do. The other thing that the legislative branch can do, and we've talked about this as part of the FATAR scorecard, is really understanding what our workforce gaps are and having real actions against those. And you know, and, and you're right, there are challenges in hiring. You're not going to fill all those gaps overnight. But if you clearly know those gaps from a cyber and IT perspective and supplement that with the right contracting personnel, uh, you know, I've, we've seen that done historically over the years. And I think the discipline around what those gaps are and really getting after it uh, from a, a, a you know a really organized fashion both with direct hires and then also with, you know, contracting supplement, supplemental help. I think that's really what's needed. But I do love some of the flexibilities with 
direct hiring authority, critical pay positions. Those things all need to be explored to, to jumpstart the workforce. Yeah, it's funny. You're not the first person to point out what the IRS potentially will be able to do as a result of the IRA. And it seems to me the IRS has had a bad rap, and unfortunately, rightfully so, because of their technology plant for a long time. And it strikes me that over the next maybe two to three years, they could potentially become a case study for how to do this at other agencies across government because they have the money to do it now. And they have some folks over there like Harrison Smith and his team that are trying to really do some pretty innovative things and, and really throw out old ways of thinking and doing business. Yeah, there's money. And I think there's the ability to hire, you know, individuals with the, through that critical position. And, and we saw that work, uh, you know, back in the day, I'm dating myself a little bit when I was back at GAO. But if you recall, Francis, they had a really good stint there where we actually took the IRS IT uh, component off GAO's high risk list because they were headed in the right direction and managing risk. There's no reason, you know, that can't happen again with the right people and budgets in place. All right. And with the budgets in place, and that's why I think this is a potential case study, because with the money in place behind the hiring authorities and the innovative efforts to do it, I mean, it's it's a two, three, five year plan, maybe, but there's potential for tangible results at the end of it, right? Yeah, the thing that I liked with that money, the four point eight billion, I th think it has to be spent by twenty thirty one. So they're acknowledging this is a long term effort. The other thing that I will highlight on budgets, Francis, I loved what OMB did and the National Cyber Director. They put out some uh, cyber budget priorities for you know looking at fiscal year twenty four. Uh, on what agencies to look at. It had stuff in there like zero trust, but it highlighted supply chain. And it actually, it was a cyber memo, like what we need to consider for our cyber budgets, but it had a whole section in there on IT modernization. And I thought it was the first time that some of the budget guidance really connected the dots on cyber things, as well as the modernization initiatives, because we have these security problems with our legacy applications. So I thought that memo that, you know, Director Young and uh, Inglis put out was spot on in terms of what we need to look at from a cyber budgeting perspective. Dave Pounder, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the new IT caucus in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.